We ain't going to waste any time. Would you turn with me to the book of Hebrews? We're going to be in the book of Hebrews in the uh, fourth chapter. Fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews. We're going to look at three verses, but we're really going to stay planted in the middle verse. So Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. This is the word of the Lord. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you join us here today? God, if we don't hear from you, we don't hear anything good. So Holy Spirit, come and let us hear with open ears what you are saying to us through this text in Jesus' name. Amen. When we got the assignment to speak on Jesus and then we're given a text out of the book of Hebrews, if you know the Bible, you say, oh, Jesus, you're going to go gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, for sure. That's a slam dunk. Pastor Brett said, I'm not taking it easy on you young bucks. I'm going to make you work for this one. So he gave us Hebrews. And so I want to give you some context on the book of Hebrews that's going to frame uh, this passage and some of the uh, words and the language that's used in it. We don't know the author of the book of Hebrews. Uh, A lot of people think it's Paul. It could have been Peter. It could have been one of their associates, Barnabas or Apollos. Uh, But what we do know is we know that the author had a personal relationship with the disciples And uh, so that is rooted, this text is rooted in the teaching of the apostles as it relates to Jesus. And we know that the author assumes that the audience reading it is intimately familiar with the Old Testament. Because all throughout the book, he references Old Testament things. We're going to talk about one of them today, but he talks about angels and the Torah and Moses and the covenant and high priests and Melchizedek and all this stuff. And he never really gives any setup or explanation. So he assumes that they know about Abraham and the nation of Israel. And so it's a pretty good idea that he was writing to Jewish Christians, which is why the title of the book is Hebrews. So for today, if you would, put yourself in the shoes of a Jewish Christian at this time. You grew up studying the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. You knew the prophets and what they said. You knew of the covenant made with Abraham and Israel. You knew about the prophets speaking of a coming Messiah from the line of David that would restore and fulfill the covenant. You knew there was something that was going to happen at some point in the future, and that's what you had your faith and your hope in, and you were alive during the time that this enigma named Jesus shows up on the scene, and everything that he does really, really conspicuously lines up with everything you were taught. Maybe, maybe he's the one we've been waiting for. Surely not, though. It's been thousands of years. It couldn't be him. But as Jesus lives his life and does his ministry, he's performing signs, miracles, and wondering, your wheels are turning. Could this be the Messiah promised to us? He's from the line of David. There's no evidence of sin. He's got a story of a miraculous birth. And then he is killed, crucified, and then raised himself up from the dead. And that was it for you. You said that was it. Jesus was the one. He was the one we waited for. I put my trust, my hope, and my faith in him. I am going to follow the gospel of Jesus. And surely all my Jewish brethren will go with me. 
But what happened was they didn't. And these Jewish Christians faced persecution and imprisonment because of their belief in Jesus. And the author is writing to them for two reasons. He's writing to them to elevate Jesus as superior over everybody else. All throughout this text, the book of Hebrews, he's comparing Jesus to people and events in Israel's history. And the whole time he's elevating Jesus as superior to them all. He's bigger than all of them. He is better. And the second reason is he's challenging them to remain faithful in the face of persecution. Now hold fast to your confession of faith. I know it's hard. I know it doesn't seem worth it. I know you're under a lot, but remember who Jesus is. Hold fast. And he's reminding them, don't turn back to the old covenant, but stand rather in the new covenant. I want to go back and read verse 15. And with that in mind, that context in mind, my Jewish Christian brethren here today, you don't look like any other Jewish people I've seen, but you guys look great here today. Hebrews 4.15, this is where we're going to plant today. It says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. When the author compares Jesus to the high priest, it immediately communicates something to the readers. They get it. That is a clear and vivid image. For us, it's a little fuzzy. We don't have a high priest. But it's like if I told you, Jesus is like a pastor. You would say, oh, I got it. He sits on a stool. Like, okay, that makes sense. No, no, you, you, would, you would know, okay, okay, so he's teaching. He teaches people. He pastors them. He shepherds them. He, he exhorts them from darkness into light up to a standard of righteousness. We could begin to kind of see that. But when we talk about Jesus as high priest, it means something a little bit different. Priest's responsibility in this time, the high priest, his job was to go before God to represent the people to go before God to represent the people. This means he had access to the presence of God and was an advocate on behalf of the people. The high priest had access to the presence. You ever had access to somewhere that no, nobody else does? It feels pretty cool, doesn't it? You got a badge to a building that only you can get in. You got the code to the room. You got a connection at the club. The golf club. Come on, church. Your minds went there. Mine didn't. Your minds went there. <laughs> uh, I did a wedding this past week uh, up in Front Royal at this lodge, this beautiful lodge in the Shenandoah uh, Mountains. And um, I had never been there before. I was driving out for the first time, and I pull up to it. It's beautiful, but I'm going up this hill. And uh, I just thought it was like any other lodge, like it would just be like a hotel. But I pull up to these big iron gates, and there's a guard booth, and there's a badge thing. And I'm like, they didn't tell me any of this, man. I just, so I pulled up, and she kind of gave me a look. I said, I'm here to officiate a wedding of, and I said the name of the couple. She gave me a nod. She did something, and the gates opened up before me. Some of you need to know the right name will give you access to places you've never been before. You're dropping the wrong name, and if you would drop the right name, the name of Jesus, things might open up before you to places you've never been before. Jesus gives us access. He gives us access. But he's also our advocate. 
he doesn't just give us access. He's also our advocate. The high priest would advocate on behalf of the people. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, they would go behind the veil, the veil that would separate in the tabernacle, that would separate the presence of God from the people. It was God's literal dwelling place on earth. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. And to do that, he would, he would uh, go through um, a really ritualistic uh, cleansing ceremony. He had to wear specific clothing. He had to bring sacrifice. He had to sprinkle blood on himself and on the room, which to us is a super weird image of a man with some blood to make things clean. It seems a little bit backwards, but um, he had to cleanse himself. Leviticus says, the life is in the blood, and I've given you the blood for the atonement of sins. And so as he sprinkles, he makes it clean because you can't enter the house of God unclean. You ever remember when it rained as a kid and you went outside to play in the mud? If it rained, we were playing mud football. That was the best day after school. We'd run over to my friend's house, play mud football. It wasn't really about football. It was just about sliding around in the mud and getting all nasty. You remember that? And then you come home and you take one step in your mama's house and she goes, stop. Don't you come in my house with that mud all over you. Go to the garage. Go get the hose. We had to go down to the basement. My mom is here. She'll validate this. We had to go down to the basement. We had to take everything off and put it in a big utility sink. Because if you come in the house unclean, mama will kill you. And if you enter the presence of God unclean, your sin makes you unworthy to stand in the glorious presence of our God. And it's not because God is a neat freak. It's not because he's a rules guy. It's because he is holy. He is holy. And often we forget about the holiness of God. We live in the new covenant. And we're used to being in the presence of God. We have worship services, an amazing worship team with Pastor Tiffany and JC and all these folks. And Darian who, who usher us into the presence of God. And we get really familiar with that. So much so we're singing songs like, show me your glory, show me your glory, in wonder and surrender we fall down. Let me tell you, it wouldn't be wonder and surrender you'd fall down in if you were in the glory of God. It would just be in your death that you fell down in. Because I remember a man, Moses, who said, God, show me your glory. And God said, um, no, I'm going to show you my back through this cleft in the rock so it doesn't kill you. That's how holy I am. Let us not assume, Jared said it great, <laughs> Jesus is not your homeboy. He is not your friend. He, he is holy, righteous, sitting at the right hand of God, enthroned in the heavens. He is holy. So we have to be clean to approach our God. In Jesus, we have access because we have an advocate. And so when the author describes Jesus as high priest, He's painting a really clear picture. And in this text, he gives us two unique and compelling reasons why Jesus is a better high priest. I'm going to talk to you about Jesus as the advocate and Jesus as the access. So what makes a good advocate? If you're advocating on behalf of somebody, what makes a good advocate? You would, that, that advocate would know your story. They would share in your perspective. And they would probably sympathize with where you're coming from. You ever had to defend someone at work, like your buddy, but you're with that other person that doesn't, they like you, but they don't like them, and then they're talking bad about them, and you're in the middle, and you, don't, you have to kind of cover for them, and you say, well, well, well think of it from their perspective. Maybe they're, maybe, maybe, maybe they're stressed, and you're in this awkward middle place where you sympathize with that person. Our text 
says Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And that alone is a radical idea. Jesus leaves heaven, a perfect thing, to come to earth, a corrupt thing. And he does it willingly. You ever left a good thing to go to a bad thing? You ever done it on purpose? <laughs> you ever made, now I'm not talking about that job you thought you were taking because they offered you more money and a promotion. You thought, that must be the hand of blessing from the Lord, so I am going to take it, only to find out the reason they gave you that much money was they couldn't hire nobody else because the work was terrible, the clients were awful, and you thought you were going in God's will, but you were chasing the bag. In the title, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about would you willingly leave a comfortable thing, a good thing, to go into a bad thing? About four years ago, my wife and I and a, about 10 other people from Grace Covenant went on a mission trip to Scotland. Um, it's a phenomenal trip. And like most mission trips out of Grace Covenant, we're going to partner with an every nation church. We're going to do evangelism on the campuses, and we're going to support whatever initiatives, projects, outreaches, or things that church is doing. We're going to go to support them, to lift them up, to cast a wider net, to be the hands and feet for them. And so we went to the University of Edinburgh, and we were God-testing on campus. It was the first time I ever felt was made to feel stupid as a Christian. You think America is trending towards post-Christian. Europe is, is been there. They, they have, they've, they're living in post-Christian. So you go to try to God test some 18-year-old punk, I mean some 18-year-old student from, um, from Edinburgh, forgive me. And, uh, and that you would mention God is a clear indication to them that you are stupid and you, but you clearly don't know anything. It's really offended me because I take a very apologetic to my faith. I don't just want to feel good in church. I want to understand and see God's hand through science and history and everything, but that's beside the point. One of the nights that we were in Edinburgh, we partnered with, it wasn't an every nation church, but it was a Presbyterian church that did this outreach every Friday night. And they went down into like the depths of the city. And I say that because it literally, as we walked towards it, felt like we were descending. It felt like it was getting darker uh, as we went. And... Um, Presbyterian priest, the sweetest man, very soft-spoken. We met in his church to kind of rally the troops and kind of, you know, cast the vision and understand what we were doing. It's this beautiful, old uh, Scottish church with wooden walls and pews with a red, scratchy fabric, and it just smelled of, like, musty, old church. You know, that, that, that from, like, your childhood, that just, that disgusting, beautiful smell of, you know, you know what I'm talking about, like, that hymn books with, yeah, they've been there forever, they've never been replaced, and we're in this, you know, amazing moment, it's Grace Covenant, man, where they're full of faith, we're full of fire, we're shouting down the heavens that we're going to go, and we're going to, we're going to take the city, and we're going to go, and we're going to lead these people to Christ, and we're being led by this very soft-spoken gentleman. And he, uh, and he takes us, and we're walking, and, uh, you know, we're all, we're all fired up. We're going down, down, down into the city. It's getting dark. It's like the walls are closing in on us. So what do we get ourselves into, man? And as we go, um, I was kind of out front. I noticed that we were kind of separating. We were kind of getting apart. People were stopping and waiting. And so uh, we kind of circled back to find out what was going on. And our Presbyterian pastor who was leading us uh, had stopped us. And so we kind of circled back to see what he was doing. And um, we're walking through a section of the city that a lot of homeless people were living in. This is just kind of where they camped out. It's September in Scotland. It's cold. And we look at this pastor who has come to a man who has gotten down and taken a seat 
on the mat on the sleeping bag of a homeless man and has brought him a cup of coffee. He's given it to him. He pulls out a little green book, the Gospel of John. He just begins to read it to him. He just loves on this man. He just shares the gospel with him. And you've got us calling down fire from heaven. I'm going to, I'm going to. And this image is visceral. It's burned into my mind. I've got a picture of it if you can, if you can show it. It's burned into my mind of this man just being the love of God. And it reminds me that this is exactly what Jesus did for me. As he walked by me, he saw me sitting in my dirt and in my filth, in my inability to give him anything. I have nothing to offer. I've got nothing to offer. And Jesus, he didn't just give me a hand to help me up. He came down and sat with me in my weakness and sat with me in my dirtiness and in my filth. And he just put an arm around me and he just loved me. Just for who I was. Just because he made me. Because I was a human being and that means I have worth in his eyes. He just loved me. We have a God that is unlike any other God. For every other God, you have a way to get to him. You can reach nirvana. You can attain enlightenment. You can appease him. And if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you are promised eternity. But we have a God who came to us to sit in our mess so that he could lift us up out of it. I want you to God test. It's a good tool. And I want you to share your two-minute miracle, your testimony in two minutes, just to tell people who you were, who you are, or who you were, what Jesus did, and who, and who you are now. But even more than that is I want you, like Jesus, to see people for who they are and to love them just where they are, to open yourself up relationally to somebody else, to open up your home to somebody else, not because they're saved, not because you're trying to, to do anything to them or convince them of this or that, just because they have worth and God loves them. I want you to play the long game with your neighbors and your coworkers. I want you to build a relationship because God built one with you and he hasn't left you yet. You keep walking away. I keep walking away. I'm not, there's no condemnation here. We're all in this fight together. But I turn my back all the time, and he's right there sitting on my mat waiting for me to come back to him. If we're going to be the body of Christ, if we're going to achieve reconciliation, unity, it's going to come with a price. And the price of unity is always sacrifice. The price of unity is always sacrifice. It's going to cost you something. You want unity in your marriage? It's going to cost you something. You want unity in your teams at work and the people you lead? It's going to cost you something. It's not going to cost them something. It's going to cost you something. We want to be united back with God. It costs something. It costs the life of Jesus on our behalf. There's a price for unity and it's sacrifice. Craig Rochelle says, um, he says, he says, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. Isn't that worth the price? Isn't that worth the price? We're not just going for moral behavioral modification and just be a better person. No, no, no. We are bringing dead people alive in Christ. Isn't that the worth, the sacrifice of making a new friend, of having some neighbors over for dinner, of reaching out to where you've never reached before? Jesus can advocate for us. 
because he sympathizes with our weakness. He has compassion. I'm going to steal from Pastor June on this one. This is a benefit of preaching third is you get all the really good material. You can just pick from it and put it into your sermon at the end of the day. He said that word compassion, it's a deep, guttural feeling. That's how Jesus feels about you. Deep in his gut, he has sympathy for you. He knows what you're going through, and so that makes him a better advocate than the high priest who could not associate with you. But it says he has, he's able to sympathize with our weakness. Let me say it correctly. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted, yet did it without sin. The question of access is a question of purity and a question of worthiness when it comes to encountering the living God. Can an unclean man stand in the presence of a holy God? Isaiah in the Old Testament has a vision of going before the throne room of God, and his response is, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. And a seraphim comes and puts a coal in his mouth to purify him so that he could stand before God. We only have access if we are cleansed by the blood. Hebrews 9 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. There's a reason Jesus can sympathize with our weakness. He didn't just live on this earth. He shared in our struggle. In Matthew 4, we see him in the wilderness after 40 days of fasting. And the devil comes attempting and said, turn that stone to bread. And he says what? Man doesn't live by bread alone. Ice cold. What a response, by the way. My interpretation here on this part, then the devil says, clearly you don't want to live, so go ahead and throw yourself down off these rocks. And Jesus, ice cold, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And then he says, if you bend your knee to me, I'll give you all the heavens and all the kingdoms on the earth. And he says, worship the Lord your God only and serve him. He was tempted. He was tempted. What did Jesus want after 40 days of fasting? He wanted to eat. What was his mission and his calling on earth? It was to die. He could have just wrapped it all up right then. And what does he want ultimately? Every knee to bow and every tongue to confess to his name. But if you take it out of season, it's not going to produce what it's meant to produce. And if the source is bad, the solution is bad. So Jesus knew he couldn't take from this, although I bet it sounded real good. There's another moment in Mark 14, and Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he calls his three closest friends. And to, and to pray with him. And he is under such pressure and agony at what is about to come. He knows he is about to be arrested, beaten, tortured, and executed on a cross. He knows that. And he says, come and pray with me. And he is sweating droplets of blood. And he's saying, God, if this cup could pass, please just let it pass. If there's any other way, God, let there be another way. But not my will. Be done, but yours. That is temptation when your life is on the line. It is a beautiful moment of Jesus' true humanity. A lot of us feel like God is he's a little bit too far off or too distant, or maybe you're too unworthy, or he just he doesn't relate, man. God went through what you went through. He shared in your struggle. He cried out for the thing that was about to happen to him to not happen to him. I know you've been there. I've been there. This cannot be the way, God. Let there be another way. And he walked through it anyways. 
He didn't turn his back on his calling. He didn't turn his back on his God. He was tempted, yet he did it without sin. Some of you today need to know that being tempted is not sin. I know if you feel like, well, I got tempted to do it, so I just, I was tempted, so I did it. I was already halfway there, so what's the big deal? I need to tell you that the temptation is not the sin. Even Jesus was tempted. The temptation is the start of the fight. That's the start of the battle. When you hear that voice, when you feel that way, when that opportunity is right there before you to say that thing, that's when you start the fight. And that's not when you say, clearly I'm a sinner. I already knew that. I'll just start over again on Sunday. It's Friday. You know, it's been a long week. We'll just get through this and give myself an excuse that we want to make. Jesus was tempted, and yet he didn't sin. That you are tempted does not mean you are a failure. It means that you are breathing. It just means that you're alive. Can we rewrite that old story on our lives that because I'm tempted all the time and because I just struggle with this, that's just my lot in life and I just can't through it, there's no other way? That's boring to me. Rewrite your narrative, man. Jesus did it on the cross for you. He was tempted and went through it without sin. He relied on the word of God, the word of God to pull him through it. And when he conquered temptation, he doesn't just set an example for us of moral character. Please do not hear today that if we were to follow in this example of Jesus, it means we are morally better or something. When Jesus, our advocate, lived a life that was pure and blameless and spotless, he conquered what nobody else had conquered before. He made a better way. The cycle of sin of great men and women of the Bible, we've talked about a few of them. Adam and Eve were given the garden, presence, the presence of God. They took what was not theirs to take, and then they were exiled from the presence of God. David was promised Jerusalem, kingship over Israel, his legacy forever, takes what he shouldn't have taken. And starts a downward, a downward spiral that leads to Israel being exiled out of Jerusalem. Jesus in another garden. On the verge of giving us eternal uh, life in the presence of God was tempted. Yet he did not take. He made a better way. He established a new covenant. And if we, all he says is if you would put your trust in me. Whosoever believes in me will have everlasting life. If you would believe in me, you would share in eternity with me. This is the better way. He, it, listen, the, 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 the high priests of old, had, they brought sacrifices to get access. Jesus doesn't have access because he brings a sacrifice. We have access because we bring Jesus before the throne of God and we plead his blood over ours. The old covenant is, is uh, made new. That law, the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The holy of holies behind the veil. You know, the Bible says Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. This is Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. There needs to be a penalty for our sin. We have offended a holy and a righteous God. For us to stand in his presence requires something. That price was paid. So what does our author tell us in verse 16? He says this. He says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. 
You, my Jewish Christian brother and sister here today, suffering persecution wherever you are, on the verge of your faith, is this real? Is this not? Am I really saved? Who really is Jesus? I just come because I'm supposed to come, and I think if I, come to, if I don't come to church, bad things will happen. Can I tell you that there is hope in the person of Jesus Christ, a great high priest who knows what you're going through because his heart of compassion is for you. He has walked in your shoes, yet he did it at a better level, one that none of us can achieve. That means we can take him with us into our battles. So I'll give you two applications for what you can do with this message. From verse 14 and verse 16, you can hold fast. You can hold fast to your confession of faith. That's what our author admonishes this, uh, these people, the readers, to do. He says, since we have this high priest who passed through the heavens, hear me on this. Jesus wasn't just able to go behind the veil one day a year. He just wasn't able to do it one time on the Day of Atonement and, and, and represent us once. Jesus passed through the heavens where he sits currently enthroned at the right hand of God and came to earth to live a life we couldn't live and die a death we couldn't live. So we can with confidence hold fast to our confession of faith. The second thing you can do is you can draw near. If you haven't made a decision for Christ, if you're not sure what that looks like or how to do that or if you've been on the edge, you've been teetering, our author says this, let us then confidently approach the throne of what? Condemnation? Of conviction? Of judgment? No, of grace. The throne of grace where you will find mercy. Condemnation? Con no. No, judgment? No, 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 no. A side eye from some? No, no, no. You will receive mercy and you will find grace to help you in your time of need. This is what Jesus offers you enthroned in the heavens. With confidence, let us approach it. And we can have confidence because of what our author says in Hebrews chapter 10. He gives us what he says is the full assurance of faith. I'm going to read this and I'm going to close. Stephen, if you're here, why don't you come up? Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hallelujah. Let's just give him a shout of praise and a hand clap of worship. He who promised is faithful. If he said it, he'll do it. Let's pray.